Chapter 16 Let Your Light So Shine In the last two chapters, we have considered the two positive statements which our Lord made about the Christian. He is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But he was not content with making merely a positive statement. To him, evidently, this matter was so important that he must emphasize it, as was customary with him, by means of certain negatives. He was anxious that those people to whom he was actually speaking, and indeed all Christians in every age, should see clearly that we are what he has made us in order that we may become something. That is the great argument which you find running right through the Scriptures. It is seen perfectly in that statement of the Apostle Peter, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 That is the argument, in a sense, in every New Testament epistle, which, again, shows the utter folly of regarding this Sermon on the Mount as merely meant for some Christians who are yet to live in some future age or dispensation. For the teaching of the apostles, as we saw in our general introduction to the sermon, is just an elaboration of what we have here. Their letters provide many examples of the working out of this very matter we are considering. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul describes Christians as luminaries, or lights, in the world, and he exhorts them to hold forth the word of life for that reason. He makes constant use of the comparison of light and darkness in order to show how the Christian functions in society because he is a Christian. Our Lord seems very anxious to impress this upon us. We are to be the salt of the earth, Very well. But remember, if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. We are the light of the world. Yes, but let us remember that a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Then we have this final summing up of it all again. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In view of the way in which our Lord emphasizes this, it is obvious that we must consider it also. It is not enough just to remember that we are to act as salt in the earth or as the light of the world. We also have to grasp the fact that it must become the biggest thing in the whole of our life for the reasons which we shall consider. Perhaps the best way of doing so is to put it in the form of a number of statements or propositions. The first thing to consider is why we as Christians should be like salt and light, and why should we desire to be so. It seems to me that our Lord has three main arguments there. The first is that, by definition, we were meant to be such. His very comparisons convey that teaching. The business of salt is to be salt, just that. The characteristic of salt is saltness. It is exactly the same with light. The whole function and purpose of light is to give light. We must start there and realize that these things are self-evident and need no illustration. Yet the moment we put it like that, does it not tend to come as a rebuke to us all? How prone we are to forget these essential functions of salt and light. As we proceed with the argument, I think you will agree that this is something of which we need constantly to be reminded. A lamp, as our Lord puts it, and he is just appealing to ordinary, natural, common sense. 
A lamp is lit in order that it may give light to all that are in the house. There is no other purpose in lighting a lamp but that. The whole object is that light may be disseminated and diffused in that particular area. That, therefore, is our first statement. We have to realize what a Christian is by definition, and this is our Lord's own definition of him. So that, at the very outset, when we start describing a Christian in our own terms, our definition must never be less than that. These are the essential things about him. Salt. Light. But let us come to the second argument, which seems to me to be that our position becomes not only contradictory, but even ridiculous if we do not act in this way. We are to be like a city that is set on a hill, and a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. In other words, if we are truly Christian, we cannot be hid. Put in a different way, the contrast between us and others is something which is to be quite self-evident and perfectly obvious. But our Lord does not leave it at that. He presses it still further. He asks us, in effect, to imagine a man lighting a light and then putting it under a bushel instead of putting it on a candlestick. Now, in the past, commentators have spent a good deal of their time in defining what is meant by a bushel, sometimes with amusing results. To me, the important thing is that it covers the light, and it does not matter very much what it is as long as it does that. What our Lord is saying is that it is a ridiculous and contradictory procedure. The whole purpose of lighting a light is that it may give light, and for a foolish man to cover it with something which prevents that quality from manifesting itself is, we are all agreed, utterly ridiculous. Yes, but remember that our Lord is speaking about us. There is obviously a danger, or at least a temptation, that the Christian may behave in this completely ridiculous and futile manner, and that is why he emphasizes the matter in this way. He seems to be saying, I have made you something that is meant to be like a light, like a city set upon a hill which cannot be hid. Are you deliberately concealing it? Well, if you are, apart from anything else, it is something which is completely ridiculous and foolish. But come to the last step in his argument here. To do this, according to our Lord, is to render ourselves utterly useless. Now, this is very striking, and there is no doubt that he uses these two comparisons in order to bring out this particular point. Salt without its savor is quite useless. In other words, as I said at the beginning, there is only one essential quality of salt, and that is saltness. And when salt has lost its saltness, it is of no use at all. Now, that is not true of everything. Take flowers, for example. When they are alive, they are very beautiful and they may have an aroma, but when the flower dies, it does not become quite useless. You can throw it onto the compost heap and it may be useful as compost. So with many other things. They do not become useless when their primary function ceases to operate. You can still make some secondary or subsidiary use of them. But the extraordinary thing about salt is that the moment it loses its saltness, it is really no use at all. It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. It is very difficult to know what to do with it. You cannot throw it on a compost heap. It does harm there. It just has no function or value at all. And the only thing to do is to get rid of it. Nothing is left once it loses the essential quality and purpose for which it has been made. The same is true of light. The essential characteristic of light 
is that it is light and gives light, and it really has no other function whatsoever. In other words, the moment it ceases to act as light, it has no value. Its essential quality is its only quality, and once it loses that, it becomes entirely useless. According to our Lord's argument, that is the truth concerning the Christian. As I understand it, it seems to me to be an inevitable piece of logic and interpretation. There is nothing in God's universe that is so utterly useless as a merely formal Christian. I mean by that one who has the name but not the quality of a Christian. The Apostle Paul describes this when he speaks of certain people having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. They appear to be Christian. But they are not. They want to appear as Christians, but they are not functioning as Christians. They are salt without savor, light without light. If you can imagine such a thing, you can do so most easily, perhaps, when you think of the illustration of the light being hid by the bushel. If you test this by observation and experience, you will have to agree that it is the simple truth. The formal Christian is a man who knows enough about Christianity to spoil the world for him. But he does not know enough about it for it to be of any positive value. He does not go with the world because he knows just enough about it to be afraid of certain things, and the people who live right in the world know that he is trying to be different, and that he cannot be wholeheartedly with them. On the other hand, he has no real fellowship with the Christian. He has enough Christianity to spoil everything else, but not enough to give him real happiness, peace, and joy, and abundance of life. I think such people are the most pathetic people in the world. Our Lord certainly says they are the most useless people in the world. They do not function as worldlings or as Christians. They're nothing, neither salt nor light, neither one thing nor the other. And as a matter of actual fact, they are cast out, cast out as it were by the world and cast out by the church. They refuse to regard themselves as of the world, while on the other hand, they do not enter truly into the life of the church. They feel it themselves, and others feel it. There is always this barrier. They are finally outsiders. They are more outside, in a sense, than the man who is entirely worldly and makes no claim or profession, because he at least has his own society. Of all people, then, these are the most pathetic and the most tragic. And the solemn warning which we have in this verse is the warning of our Lord against getting into such a state and condition. It is reinforced by those parables in Matthew 25, where we are told again of this final shutting out of such people, like salt that is thrown out. To their amazement, they will eventually find themselves shut outside the door, trodden underfoot of men. This has been proved historically. There have been certain churches which, having lost their savor, or having ceased to give out the true light, have just been trodden underfoot. There was once a powerful Christian church in North Africa, a flourishing church that produced many of those early giants, including the great Saint Augustine. But it lost its savor and its true light, and because of that, it was literally trodden underfoot and has ceased to be. It has happened in other countries. God give us grace to take this solemn warning unto ourselves: a mere formal profession of Christianity. Is something that will ultimately always suffer that fate. Perhaps we can sum it all up in this way: the true Christian cannot be hid; he cannot escape notice. A man truly living and functioning as a Christian will stand out; he will be like salt. 
He will be like a city set upon a hill, a candle set upon a candlestick. But we can also add this further word. The true Christian does not even desire to hide his light. He sees how ridiculous it is to claim to be a Christian and yet deliberately to try to hide the fact. A man who truly realizes what it means to be a Christian, who realizes all that the grace of God has meant to him and done for him, and understands that, ultimately, God has done this in order that he may influence others, is a man who cannot conceal it. Not only that, he does not desire to conceal it, because he argues thus, ultimately, the object and purpose of it all is that I might be functioning in this way. These comparisons and illustrations, then, are meant by our Lord to show us that any desire which we may find in ourselves to hide the fact that we are Christian is not only to be regarded as ridiculous and contradictory, it is, if we indulge it and persist in it, something which, though I do not understand the doctrine at this point, may lead to a final casting out. Let me put it this way. If we find in ourselves a tendency to put the light under a bushel, we must begin to examine ourselves and make sure that it really is light. It seems to be a fact about salt and light that they want to manifest their essential quality. So if there is any uncertainty about this, we should examine ourselves and discover again the cause of this illogical and contradictory position. Let us put it, therefore, in this simple form. The next time I find myself with any sort of tendency to cover over the fact that I am a Christian, in order maybe to ingratiate myself with somebody else or to avoid persecution, I am just to think of the man lighting his candle and then covering it with a bushel. The moment I think of it like that and see how ridiculous it is, I shall recognize that the subtle thing which offered me that bushel is the hand of the devil. I shall therefore reject it and shine still more brightly. That is the first statement. Let us now come to the second which is a very practical one. How are we to ensure that we really do function as salt and as light? In a sense, both illustrations put this point, but the second is perhaps the simpler of the two. Our Lord talks about the difficulty, the impossibility, of a man ever restoring the quality of saltness to salt. Again, the commentators are most interested in that, and give an illustration of a man who had once on a journey found some sort of salt which had lost its saltness. How foolish we can become when we begin to study Scripture in terms of words, instead of doctrine. We need not go to the East to try to find salt without saltness. Our Lord's sole purpose here is to show how ridiculous the whole thing is. The second of the two illustrations is the more definite. Two things only are necessary to the lamp, the oil and the wick and the two things always go together. You will find, of course, that some people talk only about the oil, others only about the wick. But without the oil and the wick, you will never have a light. The two are absolutely essential, and so we are to pay attention to them both. The parable of the ten virgins again helps us to remember that. The oil is absolutely essential and vital. We can do nothing without it, and the whole point of the Beatitudes, in a sense, is just to emphasize that fact. We have to receive this life, this divine life. We cannot function as light without it. We are only the light of the world as he who is the light of the world works in and through us. The first thing then which we must ask ourselves is, have I received this life divine? Do I know that Christ is dwelling in me? 
Paul prays for the Ephesians that Christ may dwell in their hearts richly by faith, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. The whole doctrine concerning the work of the Holy Spirit is essentially that. It is not to give particular gifts such as tongues or the various other things about which people get so excited. His purpose is to give life and the graces of the Spirit, which is a more excellent way. Am I sure that I have the oil, the life, that which the Holy Spirit of God alone can give to me? The first exhortation, then, must be that we must seek this constantly. That means, of course, prayer, which is the action of going to receive it. We so often tend to think that these gracious invitations of our Lord are something which are given once and forever. He says, Come unto me if you want the water of life. Come unto me if you want the bread of life. But we tend to think that once and forever we come to Christ, and thereafter we have this permanent supply. Not at all. It is a supply that we have to renew. We have to go back and receive it constantly. We are to live in contact with Him, and it is only as we constantly receive this life from Him that we shall function as salt and as light. But of course, it not only means constant prayer, it means what our Lord Himself describes as hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You will remember we interpreted that as being something that goes on continuously. We are filled, yes, but we always want more. We are never static. We never rest upon our oars. We never say, once and forever, not at all. We go on hungering and thirsting. We go on realizing our perpetual need of Him and of this supply of life and of everything He has to give. So we continue to read the Word of God, where we can learn about Him and this life which He offers us. The supply of oil is essential. Read the biographies of the men who have obviously been like cities set upon a hill which cannot be hid. You will find that they did not say, I have come to Christ once and for all. Here is the one great climactic experience of life that will last forever afterwards. Not at all. They tell us that they found it an absolute necessity to spend hours in prayer and Bible study and meditation. They never ceased drawing the oil and receiving the supply. The second essential is the wick. We must attend to this also. To keep that lamp burning brightly, the oil is not enough. You must keep on trimming the wick. That is our Lord's illustration. Many of us today have never known anything other than this modern world of electricity. But some of us remember how the wick had to be given special attention. Once it began to smoke, it did not give the light, so the wick had to be trimmed. And a very delicate process it was. What does this mean in practice for us? I think it means that we constantly have to remind ourselves of the Beatitudes. We should read them every day. I ought to remind myself daily that I am to be poor in spirit, merciful, meek, a peacemaker, pure in heart, and so on. There is nothing that is better calculated to keep the wick in order and trimmed than just to remind myself of what I am by the grace of God and of what I am meant to be. That, I suggest, is something for us to do in the morning before we start our day. In everything I do and say, I am to be like that man I see in the Beatitudes. Let us start with that and concentrate on it. But not only are we to remind ourselves of the Beatitudes, we are to live accordingly. What does this mean? 
It means that we are to avoid everything that is opposed to this character. We are to be entirely unlike the world. It is a tragic thing to me that so many Christians, because they do not want to be different or to suffer persecution, seem to be living as near as they can to the world. But this is again a contradiction in terms. There is no mean between light and darkness. It is either one or the other, and there is no communion between them. Either it is light or it is not, and the Christian is to be like that in the earth. Far from being like the world, we should concentrate on being as different as we can. Positively, however, it means that we should show this difference in our lives, and that, of course, can be done in a thousand and one ways. I cannot attempt to give a complete list. All I do know is that it means, at the very minimum, living a separated life. The world is becoming more and more rude, rougher, uglier, louder. I think all will agree with that. As the Christian influence is diminishing in this country, the whole tone of society is becoming more gross. The decencies, yes, even the little politenesses, are less and less in evidence. The Christian is not to live in that way. We are far too prone these days just to say, "I am a Christian," or "Isn't it wonderful to be a Christian?" and then sometimes to be rude and inconsiderate. Let us remember that these are the things which proclaim what we are. The manner doth proclaim the man. We are to be humble, peaceable, peacemaking in all our talk and behavior. And especially in our reactions to the behavior of other persons, I believe that the individual Christian is having a greater opportunity today than he has had for many a century, owing to the whole state of the world and of society. I believe that people are watching us very closely because we claim to be Christian, and they are watching our reactions to people and to the things they say and do to us. Do we flare up? The non-Christian does. Christian should not. He is like the man in the Beatitudes, so he reacts differently. And when confronted with world events, with wars and rumors of wars, with calamities, pestilences, and all these other things, he is not over anxious, troubled, and irritable. The world is. The Christian is not. He is essentially different. The last principle is the supreme importance of doing all this in the right way. We have considered why we are to be like salt. We have considered why we are to be like light. We have considered how to be so, how to ensure that we are, but it must be done in the right way. Let your light so shine before men—the great word there is so—that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see, there is to be a complete absence of ostentation and display. It is a little difficult in practice, is it not? To draw the line between truly functioning as salt and light, and still not to be guilty of display or ostentation, yet that is what we are told to do. We are so to live that men may see our good works, but glorify our Father which is in heaven. How difficult to function truly as an active Christian, and yet not to have any showmanship. This is true even in our listening to the gospel, quite apart from our preaching of it. As we produce and reveal it in our daily lives, we must remember that the Christian does not call attention to himself. Self has been forgotten in this poverty of spirit, in the meekness, and all the other things. In other words, we are to do everything for God's sake and for His glory. 
Self is to be absent and must be utterly crushed in all its subtlety for his sake, for his glory. It follows from this that we are to do these things in such a way as to lead other men to glorify him and glory in him and give themselves to him. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Yes, and so see them that they will themselves glorify your Father which is in heaven. Not only are you to glorify your Father, you are to do so in order that these other people may glorify him also. That in turn leads to the fact that because we are truly Christian, we are to have a great sorrow in our hearts for those other people. We are to realize that they are in darkness and in a state of pollution. In other words, the more we draw our life from him, the more we shall become like him. And he had a great compassion for the people. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He had great sorrow for them in his heart, and it was that which determined his conduct and behavior. He was not concerned about himself. He had compassion for the multitude. And that is the way in which you and I are to live and to regard these matters. In other words, in all our work and Christian living, these three things should always be uppermost. We shall always do it for His sake and His glory. We shall lead men to Him and to glorify Him. And all will be based upon a love for them and a compassion for them in their lost condition. That, then, is the way in which our Lord exhorts us to show what He has made of us. We must function as men and women who have received from Him life divine. He ridicules the opposite. He puts before us this wondrous picture of becoming like Himself in this world. It was as men and women saw him that they were led to think of God. Have you noticed how often after his miracles we read that the people gave glory unto God? They said, we have never seen things like this before. And they glorified the Father. You and I are to live like that. In other words, we are to live in such a way that as men and women look at us, we shall become a problem to them. They will ask, what is it? Why are these people so different in every way, different in their conduct and behavior, different in their reactions? There is something about them which we do not understand. We cannot explain it. And they will be driven to the only real explanation, which is that we are the people of God, children of God, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. We have become reflectors of Christ, reproducers of Christ, as He is the light of the world, So we have become the light of the world.